You're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audience. The following audio drama is a production of 63 Audio and the Narada Radio Company, a proud member of the all-new Mutual Audio Network. This is Pulp Puri Theater, starring the Narada Radio Company. Adapted from the best pulp in the world, welcome to Pulp Puri Theater! Starring the Narada Radio Company. Tonight, Arson Plus by Dashiell Hammett. Good evening, this is Ed Champion of Grey Area Productions. I've been asked by Pete Lutz to introduce this episode of Pulp Parade Theater. As this fourth season progresses, Pete and the Narada Radio Company hope you'll agree that they have been keeping their promise to bring you the best stories from the finest pulp writers in history. Tonight's program is no exception. It's based on a story by the unchallenged father of the modern detective story, the acclaimed creator of such beloved fictional detectives as Sam Spade and Nick and Nora Charles, Mr. Dashiell Hammett. And now, here's our guest announcer, Cannonball Kelly, to tell you a bit more. Tonight's tale, Arson Plus, is adapted from the first of many stories by Dashiell Hammett to feature the tough, roly-poly, hard-boiled detective agency operative called the Continental Op, the gumshoe that Hammett never bestowed with a name. Arson Plus first appeared in the October 1st, 1923 issue of Black Mask Magazine. As with all of the subsequent Continental Op stories, this inaugural one is told by the op himself. We meet up with him in the office of the Sheriff of Sacramento County in California. Listen now to Arson Plus by Dashiell Hammett. Jim Tarr picked up the cigar I rolled across his desk and looked at the band. Three for a buck. You must want me to break a couple of laws this time. I'd been doing business with this fat sheriff of Sacramento County for four or five years, ever since I came to the Continental Detective Agency, San Francisco office, and I had never known him to miss an opening for a sour crack. But it didn't mean anything. Ha! Wrong both times. I get him for two bits each, and I'm here to do you a favor instead of asking for one. The company that insured Thornburg's house thinks somebody touched it off. That's right enough, according to the fire department. They tell me the lower part of the house was soaked with gasoline, but the Lord knows how they could tell. 
There wasn't a stick left standing. I've got McClump working on it, but he hasn't found anything to get excited about yet. What's the layout? All I know is that there was a fire. Hold on. Hey, Matt! Yeah, boss? Yeah, Sheriff? What's up? The pearl push buttons on the Sheriff's desk are merely ornaments as far as Tar is concerned. Deputy Sheriffs McHale, McClump, and Macklin came to the door together. McNabb apparently wasn't within hearing. The Sheriff pointed a fat finger at McClump. What's the idea? Are you carrying a bodyguard around with you? I guess it's me, fellas. Going back to your cribbage game. We got a city slicker to catch our firebug for us, Mac. But we gotta tell him what it's all about first. Ain't the Lord good to us? McClump and I had worked together on an express robbery several months before. He's a rangy, toe-headed youngster of 25 or 6 with all the nerve in the world and most of the laziness. He dragged a chair over in front of us and draped himself across it. <sighs> well, here's how she stands. This fellow Thornburg's house was a couple miles out of town, on the old county road. An old frame house. About midnight, night before last, Jeff Pringle, he's the nearest neighbor, lives a half mile or so to the east saw a glare in the sky from over that way, and phoned in the alarm. But by the time the fire wagons got there, there wasn't enough of the house left to bother about. Pringle was the first of the neighbors to get to the house, and the roof had already fallen in by then. Nobody saw anything suspicious? You mean strangers hanging around? Nope. Thornburg's hired help just managed to save themselves, and that's all. They was too scared to tell us much, but they did see Thornburg at his window just before the fire got him. Any other witnesses? Now that you mention it, yeah. A fellow here in town, name of Henderson, saw that part of it, too. He was driving home from Waiton and got to the house just before the roof caved in. The fire department said they found signs of gasoline. The Coonses, Thornburg's help, said they didn't have no gas on the place, so there you are. Thornburg have any relatives? Yeah, a niece in San Francisco, a Mrs. Evelyn Trowbridge. She was up yesterday, but there wasn't nothing she could do, and she couldn't tell us nothing much, so she went back home. Where are the servants now? Here in town, staying at a hotel on I Street. I told them to stick around for a few days. Thornburg owned the house? Uh-huh. Bought it from the Nooning and Weed Agency a couple months ago. You got anything to do this morning? Nothing but this. Good. Let's get out and dig around. We found the Coonses in their room at the I Street Hotel. Mr. Coons was a small-boned, plump man with a smooth, meaningless face and the suavity of the typical male house servant. His wife was a tall, stringy woman, perhaps five years older than her husband, say 40, with a mouth and chin that seemed shaped for gossiping. But he did all the talking while she nodded her agreement to every second or third word. We went to work for Mr. Thornburg on the 15th of June, I think. We came to Sacramento around the first of the month and put in applications to the Alice Employment Bureau. A couple of weeks later, they sent us out to see Mr. Thornburg, and he took us on. Where were you before you came here? In Seattle, sir, with a Mrs. Comerford. But the climate there didn't agree with my wife. She has bronchial trouble. So we decided to come to California. We most likely would have stayed in Seattle, though, if Mrs. Comerford hadn't given up her house. What do you know about Thornburg? Very little, sir. He wasn't a talkative gentleman. He hadn't any business that I know of. I think he was a retired seafaring man. He never said he was, but had that manner and look. 
He never went out or had anybody in to see him, except his niece once, and he didn't write or get any mail. He had a room next to his bedroom fixed up as a sort of workshop. Workshop? What did he do in there? He spent most of his time in there, sir. I always thought he was working on some kind of invention, but he kept the door locked and wouldn't let us go near it. Haven't you any idea at all what it was? No, sir. We never heard any hammering or noises from it, and never smelled anything either. And none of his clothes were ever the least bit soiled, even when they were ready to go out to the laundry. They would have been if he had been working on anything like machinery. Was he an old man? He couldn't have been over fifty, sir. He stood very erect, and his hair and beard were thick, with no gray hairs. Ever have any trouble with him? Oh, no, sir. He was, uh, if I may say it, a very peculiar gentleman in a way. And he didn't care about anything except having his meals fixed right, having his clothes taken care of, he's very particular about them, and not being disturbed. Except early in the morning and at night, we'd hardly see him all day. Now about the fire. Tell us everything you remember. Well, sir, my wife and I had gone to bed about ten o'clock, our regular time, and had gone to sleep. Our room was on the second floor in the rear. Sometime later, um, I never did exactly know what time it was. Coon said he woke up coughing from the smoke, jumped up and dragged his wife down the back stairs and out into the yard. He remembered his boss and tried to get back in the house, but the entire first floor was engulfed in flames. He ran around the house but didn't see anything of Thornburg. Then he heard Thornburg scream from his second-story bedroom window. Coons looked up and saw his employer trying to escape through the window, but the woodwork was burning, and he screamed again and fell back, and that's when the roof caved in on him. In the meantime, a gentleman had left his automobile on the road and come up to where I was standing, but the house was burning everywhere and falling in here and there. There wasn't anything we could do. So we went back to where I had left my wife and carried her farther away from the fire. She'd fainted, so we brought her to, and that's all I know about it, sir. Hear any noises earlier that night, or see anybody hanging around? No, sir. Have any gasoline around the place? No, sir. Mr. Thornburg didn't have a car. No gasoline for cleaning? No, sir. None at all. Unless Mr. Thornburg had it in his workshop. When his clothes needed cleaning, I took them to town, and all his laundry was taken in by the grocer's man when he brought our provisions. Don't know anything that might have some bearing on the fire? No, sir. I was surprised when I heard that somebody had set the house afire. I could hardly believe it. I don't know why anybody should want to do that. As we left the hotel, I asked McClump what he'd thought of the Coonses. They might pad the bills or even go south with some of the silver, but they don't figure as killers in my mind. Yeah, that's how I take them, too but they're the only persons known to be there when the fire started. Besides Thornburg, of course. Let's step over to the uh, Alice Employment Bureau and see what we can find out about him. Good afternoon, gentlemen. What can I do for you? You the manager? Yes, I'm Mr. Alice. I'm from the Continental Detective Agency. I'm trying to get a line on a couple of your people, a Mr. and Mrs. Coons. What can you tell me about them? Oh, let's see. Here? Oh, here's that card. Mm-hmm. Well, the Coonses came into the office looking for work on June 2nd. They gave a Mrs. Edward Comerford of Woodmancy Terrace, Seattle, Washington, as reference. 
I wrote Mrs. Comerford a letter. I always check up on servants' references. And in reply, she wrote that the Kuntzes had been in her employ for a number of years and had been, and I quote, extremely satisfactory in every respect. On June 13th, Mr. Thornburg telephoned us, asking for a married couple to come out and keep house for him. Then I sent out two couples for his consideration. Were the Kuntzes in this grouping? No, two different couples. Neither one was employed by Thornburg, although I'd considered either of them more desirable than the Kuntzes. But when I sent them out, he finally hired them. Okay, thank you, Mr. Alice. All that would certainly seem to indicate that the Kuntzes hadn't deliberately maneuvered themselves into the place unless they were the luckiest people in the world. And a detective can't afford to believe in luck or coincidence unless he has unquestionable proof of it. I pulled McClump now in the direction of the real estate agent's office, Nooning and Weed. Mr. Thornburg came to our office on June 11th and wanted to know the price of the house. He said he'd already looked it over and wanted to buy it. We closed the deal the next morning, and he paid for the house with a check for $14,500 written against his account at the Siemens Bank of San Francisco. The house was already furnished. Was there anything else? You got me all worn out with your running here and there. How about some lunch? Fine with me. After that, how about we pay a visit to the other witness to the fire, Mr. Howard Henderson? Sure, sure. But you're buying. After lunch, McClump and I called on Howard Henderson, the man who had seen the fire while driving home from Waiton. He had an office in the Empire Building with his name on the door and underneath that, the words Northern California Agent for Crispy Corn Crumbs. Henderson was a big, careless-looking man of 45 or so. Sure, I'm happy to tell you about it. With a professionally jovial smile that belongs to the traveling salesman. I was in waiting on business the day of the fire and stayed there until it was pretty late. I'd gone to dinner and played pool with one of my customers, a grocer named Hammersmith. Uh... Let's see now. It was about 10.30 when I left Waiton in my machine, setting out for Sacramento. In Tavender, I stopped at a filling station for oil and gas and to get some air in one of my tires. About what time was this? That I reached Tavender? <laughs> Have to confess, I didn't look at my watch. Yeah, but I've done it enough times to know it takes about an hour. So it was probably about 11.30 or so. I was just about to leave the station when the garage man called my attention to a red glare in the sky and told me it was probably from a fire somewhere along the old county road that paralleled the state road into Sacramento. Well, that's not something you see every day, so I took the county road and arrived just in time to see the man, uh, Thornburg, try to fight his way through the flames. What did you do then? Not much I could do. It was too late by then to make any attempt to put out the fire, and, and the man upstairs was beyond saving. Hell, he was probably dead before the roof collapsed. So I helped Mr. Coons revive his wife and stayed there, watching the fire until it burned itself out. Did you see anybody else on the county road while driving the fire? Mm, uh-uh. Nope. <laughs> 
What do you know about Henderson, Mac? He came here from somewhere in the east, I think, early in the summer to open that breakfast cereal agency. Lives at the Garden Hotel. Where do we go next? We get a car and take a look at what's left of the Thornburg house. An enterprising incendiary couldn't have found a lovelier spot in which to turn himself loose if he looked the whole country over. Tree-topped hills hid it from the rest of the world on three sides. An uninhabited plain rolled down to the river on the fourth side. This county road is pretty much shunned by automobiles since they put in the new state road north of here. Let's take a look at the ruins. Mac and I poked around in the ashes for a few minutes. Not that we expected to find anything, but it's in the nature of man to poke around in ruins. There was a garage behind the house that had gotten somewhat scorched, but was otherwise undamaged, with a shed alongside that had escaped the flames altogether. The lawn in front of the house, and the garden behind the shed, about an acre in all, had been thoroughly cut and trampled by wagon wheels, and the feet of firemen and spectators. Having ruined our shoe shines, McClump and I got back in our car and swung off in a circle around the place, calling at all the houses within a mile radius and getting little besides jolts for our trouble. I saw the flames and called in the alarm. No, I can't tell you anything about Thornburg. Never met him, never even saw him. You should talk to Mrs. Jabeen. She's about a mile south of the Thornburg place. Yes, I took care of the key to the house while it was vacant. A day or two before he bought it, Mr. Thornburg had come here inquiring about it. We went over there together, and I showed him through it, and he said, if the price wasn't too high, he planned to buy the house. Well, when I heard he'd moved in, I went over a few days later, just a neighborly visit, but that Mrs. Coons told me Mr. Thornburg wasn't home. Did anyone else talk to the Coonses? Oh, yes. Nearly everybody's talked to them since they couldn't talk to Thornburg. They gave off the impression that he didn't care for visitors, and they seemed pleasant enough to talk to, I suppose. But they're like their master, if you know what I mean. He won't make friends, so they don't either. McClump summarized what the afternoon had taught us as we pointed our car toward Tavender. Any of these folks could have touched off the place, but we got nothing to show that any of them even knew Thornburg, let alone had a bone to pick with him. Tavender turned out to be a crossroads settlement of a general store and post office, a garage, a church, and six dwellings about two miles from Thornburg's place. McClump knew the storekeeper and postmaster, Philo, a scrawny little man who stuttered moistly. Philo said he'd never seen Thornburg, nor had any mail for him. He made the name of Thornburg's servant sound like the things butterflies came out of. C coons used to c come in once a week to, to order g g groceries. They didn't have a... a phone. 
he used to walk in and I'd send the stuff over in my car. Then I'd see him once in a while waiting for the stage to Sacramento. Who drove the stuff out to Thornburg's? My boy. Want to to talk to him? The boy was a juvenile edition of the old man minus the stutter. He had never seen Thornburg on any of his visits, but his business had taken him only as far as the kitchen. He hadn't noticed anything peculiar about the place. Who's the nightman at the garage? Billy Luce. I think you could catch him there now. I saw him go in a few minutes ago. We crossed the road and found Luce. Night before last, the night of the fire down the road, was there a man here talking to you when you first saw it? Yes, I remember now. He was going to town, and I told him that if he took the county road instead of the state road, he'd see the fire on his way in. What kind of looking man was he? Middle-aged. A big man but sort of slouchy. I think he had on a brown suit, baggy and wrinkled. Medium complexion? Yes. Smile when he talked? Yes. Pleasant sort of fellow. Brown hair? (laughs) Yes, but have a heart. I didn't put him under a magnifying glass. From Tavender, we drove over to Wayton. Luce's description fit Henderson all right, but while we were at it, we thought we might as well check up to make sure that he'd been coming from Wayton. Twenty-five minutes after arriving in Wayton, we were rolling back to Sacramento. We'd spent ten minutes finding Hammersmith, the grocer with whom Henderson had said he'd dined and played pool, five minutes finding the proprietor of the pool room, and ten verifying Henderson's story. What do you think of it now, Mac? There ain't a hell of a lot to think. Henderson is out of it, if he ever was in it. There's nothing to show that anybody but the Coonses and Thornburg were there when the fire started. But there may have been a regiment there. Them Coonses ain't too honest looking, maybe. But they ain't killers, or I miss my guess. But the fact remains that they're the only bet we got so far. Maybe we ought to get a line on them. Mac's too lazy to express an opinion, or even form one unless he's driven to it, but that doesn't mean they aren't worth listening to if you can get them. All right, as soon as we get back to town, I'll get a wire off to our Seattle office asking them to interview Mrs. Comerford and see what she can tell about the Coonses. Then I'm going to catch a train from San Francisco and see Thornburg's niece in the morning. Next morning, at Evelyn Trowbridge's rather elaborate apartment building on California Street, I was kept waiting for three quarters of an hour while Mrs. Trowbridge dressed. If I had been younger, I suppose I'd have felt amply rewarded when she finally came in, a tall, slender woman of less than thirty, in some sort of clinging black affair, with a lot of black hair over a very white face, strikingly set off by a small red mouth and big hazel eyes. (sighs) 
but I was a busy middle-aged detective who was fuming over having his time wasted, and I was a lot more interested in finding the bird who struck the match than I was in feminine beauty. However, I smothered my grouch, apologized for disturbing her at such an early hour, and got down to business. I want you to tell me all you know about your uncle. His family, friends, enemies, business connections, everything. He hadn't any family. Unless I might be it. He was my mother's brother, and I am the only one of that family now living. Where was he born? Here, in San Francisco. I don't know the date, but he was about 50 years old, I think. Three years older than my mother. What was his business? He went to sea when he was a boy, and... So far as I know, always followed it until a few months ago. Captain? I don't know. I wouldn't hear from him for several years, and he never talked about what he was doing. Though he would mention some of the places he had visited. Rio de Janeiro, Madagascar, Tobago, Christiana. Then, about three months ago, sometime in May, he came here and told me that he was through with wandering. He had an invention he was interested in, and he was going to take a house in a quiet place where he could work undisturbed. Where did he live while he was looking for a house? Here in the city, at the Francisco Hotel. After a couple of weeks, he simply disappeared. And then, about a month ago, I received a telegram from him, asking me to come see him at his house near Sacramento. I went up the next day, and he seemed to be very excited over something. He gave me a will that he had just drawn up, and some life insurance policies in which I was beneficiary. I never saw him again after that. He had hinted rather plainly that I shouldn't write or visit him until I heard from him. Did you find that peculiar? Yes, I did, as he had always seemed fond of me. What was this invention he was working on? I really don't know. I asked him once, but he became so agitated, even suspicious that I changed the subject and never mentioned it again. Are you sure that he really did follow the sea all those years? No, I am not. I just took it for granted, but he may have been doing something altogether different. Was he ever married? Not that I know of. Know any of his friends and enemies? No, none. Remember anybody's name that he ever mentioned? No. I don't want you to think this next question insulting, though I admit it is. Where were you the night of the fire? At home. I had some friends here to dinner, and they stayed until about midnight. Mr. and Mrs. Walker Kellogg, Mrs. John Dupree, and Mr. Kilmer, who is a lawyer. I can give you their addresses if you want to question them. The manager of the Francisco Hotel told me that Thornburg had been registered there from May 10th to June 13th and hadn't attracted much attention. His hours had been regular, and he had had no visitors that any of the hotel employees could remember. What did he look like? Well, Mr. Thornburg was tall, broad-shouldered, about 50. He had rather long brown hair, brushed straight back. A short, pointed brown beard and a healthy, ruddy complexion. I describe his dress and manner as, oh, grave, quiet, almost punctilious. 
Yes, decidedly punctilious. At the Siemens Bank, upon which Thornburg's check in payment for the house had been drawn, I was told that he had opened an account there on May 15th. Mr. Thornburg was recommended by W.W. Jeffers & Sons, the local stockbroker's firm. He still has a balance of a little more than $400, and we have canceled checks here written to the order of various life insurance companies. Would you like to jot down the name? The canceled checks had been written for amounts that, if they represented premiums, testified to rather large policies. I then went from the Siemens Bank to the offices of W.W. Jeffers & Sons and spoke to the senior Mr. Jeffers. Thornburg? He came in on the 10th of May with $15,000 worth of bonds he wanted sold. During one of our conversations, he asked me to recommend a bank. So I gave him a letter of introduction to the Siemens. That's all I know about him, really. Oh, I have the numbers of the bonds we sold, and can give them to you, if you think that'll help. <laughs> bonds aren't, as I'm sure you're aware, the easiest things in the world to trace. I went to my agency's office to check in and found the reply to my Seattle telegram waiting for me. Mrs. Edward Comerford rented apartment at address you gave on May 25. Gave it up June 6. Trunks to San Francisco same day. Check numbers on trunks. 452587 and 8 and 9. Tracing baggage is no trick at all if you have the dates and check numbers to start with. 25 minutes in a baggage room at the ferry building and half an hour in the office of a transfer company gave me my answer. The trunks for Mrs. Edward Comerford had been delivered to the apartment of Mrs. Evelyn Trowbridge. I got Sheriff Tar on the horn after this discovery and he was so excited he forgot for once to indulge his usual wit. Trowbridge there, and that's the end of another mystery. Wait a minute. It's not all straightened out yet. There's still a few kinks in the plot. It's straight enough for me. I'm satisfied. You're the boss, but I think you're being a little hasty. I'm going up and talk with the niece again. Give me a little time before you phone the police here to make the pinch. I'll hold her until they get there. <laughs> Evelyn Trowbridge let me in this time instead of the maid who had opened the door for me that morning, and she led me to the same room in which we'd had our first talk. I let her pick out a seat, and then I selected one that was closer to either door than hers was. So, I imagine you have more questions for me? On the way up, I'd planned a lot of innocent-sounding questions that would get her all snarled up, but after taking a good look at this woman sitting in front of me, leaning comfortably back in her chair, coolly waiting for me to speak my piece, I discarded the trick stuff and came out cold turkey. Ever use the name Mrs. Edward Comerford? Oh, yes. As casual as a nod on the street. When? Often. You see, I happen to have been married not so long ago to Mr. Edward Comerford. So it's not really strange that I should have used the name. Use it in Seattle recently? I would suggest that if you are leading up to the references I gave Coons and his wife, you might save time by coming right to it. 
That's fair enough. Let's do that. There wasn't a tone or shading in voice, manner, or expression to indicate that she was talking about anything half so serious or important to her as a possibility of being charged with murder. She might have been talking about the weather. During the time that Mr. Comerford and I were married, we lived in Seattle, where he still lives. After the divorce, I left Seattle and resumed my maiden name. And the Coonses were in our employ, as you might learn if you care to look it up. You'll find my husband, or former husband, at the Chelsea Apartments, I think. Last summer, or early spring, I decided to return to Seattle. Mrs. Trowbridge, or Mrs. Comerford, call her what you will, went on to say that she'd gone back to Seattle in hopes of reconciling with her former husband, and used the Comerford name because she was known by it there, and because she hoped the use of it might influence him somewhat. She rang up the Coonses to make tentative arrangements for their services, but was informed by Coons that they were moving to California. The lady was happy to write them a glowing recommendation when a letter of inquiry came from the Alice Employment Bureau in Sacramento. She changed her mind about a reconciliation after about two weeks in Seattle, discovering that Edward's interest was elsewhere. So, I returned to San Francisco. Very nice, but... If you will permit me to finish. When I went to see my uncle, I was surprised to find the Kuntzes in his house. Knowing uncle's peculiarities and remembering his extreme secretiveness about his mysterious invention, I cautioned the Kuntzes not to tell him that they had been in my employ. He certainly would have discharged them, and just as certainly would have quarreled with me. The girl went on to say that her uncle would have suspected her of spying on him. Then, after the fire, when Coons telephoned her, she knew that suspicion would be cast on all of them if she admitted they had formerly been in her employ, in view of the fact that she was her uncle's only heir, so she agreed to say nothing about it and carry on the deception. That didn't sound all wrong, but it didn't sound all right either. I wish Tar had taken it easier and let us get a better line on these people before having them thrown in the coop. The coincidence of the Coons' stumbling into my uncle's house is, I fancy, too much for your detecting instincts. Am I to consider myself under arrest? I'm beginning to like this girl. She's a nice, cool piece of work. I tell her, Not yet, but I'm afraid it's going to happen pretty soon. She smiled a little mocking smile at that, and another when the doorbell rang. It was O'Hara from police headquarters. Hi, O'Hara. She's in here. We need to search the dump. We turned the apartment upside down and inside out, but didn't find anything of importance except the will she had told me about, dated July 8th, and her uncle's insurance policies. They were all dated between May 15th and June 10th and added up to a little more than $200,000. O'Hara took Evelyn Trowbridge away, and I spent some time grilling the maid, the janitor, and the manager of the apartment building, and then the names she'd mentioned to me, and they all confirmed her story about the night of the fire. She really had been entertaining friends until late enough that she couldn't have been involved. Half an hour later, I was riding the short line back to Sacramento. I was getting to be one of the line's best customers, and my anatomy was on bouncing terms with every bump in the road. Between bumps, I tried to fit the pieces of this Thornburg puzzle together. The niece and the Coonses fit in somewhere, but not just where we had them. 
We had been working on the job sort of lopsided, but it was the best we could do with it. We had something on the Coonses and Evelyn Trowbridge now, but a good lawyer could make hash out of it. Mr. and Mrs. Coons were in the county jail when I got to Sacramento. After some questioning, they admitted their connection with Thornburg's niece and had come through with stories that matched hers. A little while later, Tar McClump and I sat around the sheriff's desk and argued. Those yarns are pipe dreams. We got all three of them cold, and they're as good as convicted. This comment caused McClump to grin derisively at his superior and turn to me. Go on. You tell him about the holes in his little case. He ain't your boss. Can't take it out on you later for being smarter than he is. Spill it, you wise guys. I figured by McClump's comment that his dope was the same as mine, so I told the sheriff, Our dope is that there's nothing to show that even Thornburg knew he was going to buy that house before the 10th of June, and that the Coonses were in town looking for work on the 2nd. And besides, it was only by luck that they got the jobs. The employment office sent two couples out there ahead of them. We'll take a chance on letting a jury figure that out. Yes, you'll also take a chance on them figuring out that Thornburg, who seems to have been a nut, might have touched off the place himself. We've got something on these people, Jim, but not enough to go into court with them. How are you going to prove that when the Coonses were planted in Thornburg's house, if you can even prove that they were planted, they and the Trowbridge woman knew he was going to load up with insurance policies? You guys are the limit! You run around in circles, digging up the dope on these people until you get enough to hang them, and then you run around hunting for outs. What's the matter with you now? Where are you going? Going to run some more circles. Come on, Mac. The pieces were beginning to fit together under my skull. McClump and I held a conference on the fly, and then I got a car from the nearest garage and headed for Tavender. I made time going out and got there before the general store had closed for the night. The stuttering Philo separated himself from two customers and followed me to the rear of the store. Do you keep an itemized list of the laundry you handle? No, just the amounts. Let's look at Thornburg's. He produced a begrimed and rumpled account book and we picked out the weekly items I wanted. $2.60, and a quarter, and so on. Got the last batch of clean laundry here? Yes. It j just c c came out from the city t t today. I tore open the bundle. Some sheets and other linen, some feminine clothing, along with shirts, collars, underwear, and socks that were unmistakably Coons's. I thanked Philo while running back to the car. When I got back to Sacramento, McClump was waiting for me at the garage where I'd hired the car. Registered at the hotel on June 15th. Rented the office on the 16th. I think he's in the hotel now. That's just around the block. Let's go. Mr. Henderson went out a minute or two ago. He seemed to be in a hurry. Know where he keeps his car? In the hotel garage around the corner. We were within ten feet of the garage when Henderson's automobile shot out and turned up the street. I called out to him and that caused him to step on the gas and streak away from us. Want him? 
Uh-huh. McClump stopped a passing roadster by the simple expedient of stepping in front of it. He flashed his star at the bewildered driver as we climbed in and pointed out Henderson's dwindling taillight. After convincing himself that he wasn't being boarded by a couple of bandits, the commandeered driver did his best, and we picked up Henderson's taillight after two or three turnings and closed in on it. Once we'd crawled up to a safe shooting distance on the outskirts of the city, I sent a bullet over the fleeing man's head. This seemed to encourage Henderson to get a little more speed out of his car, but we were gaining on him now. Then, just at the wrong minute, Henderson decided to look over his shoulder at us and... Henderson's machine ended up on its side. Almost immediately, from the heart of the tangle, came a flash, and a bullet moaned past my ear. Another! And then, while I was still hunting for something to shoot at, in the pile of junk we were drawing down upon, McClump's ancient and battered revolver roared in my other ear. Then we walked over to the wreck. Well, you got him. Nice shooting, Mac. You got him right over the eye. I ain't an inquisitive sort of fellow. But I hope you don't mind telling me why I shot this lad. Because he was... Thornburg. McClump hadn't said anything while we waited for the police to arrive. We'd sent our commandeered chauffeur back to phone for the cops. Then he said, I reckon you're right. He's Thornburg. How do you know it? He had to be when you think it all over. Funny we didn't hit on it before. All that stuff we were told about Thornburg had a fishy sound. Whiskers and an unknown profession. Immaculate and working on a mysterious invention. Very secretive and born in San Francisco, where the big fire of 06 wiped out all the old records. Just the sort of fake that could be cooked up easily. Well, Stan Henderson up against Thornburg. What do you got? Based on the description we got of Thornburg, both he and Henderson are about the same size and age and with the same color hair. The differences are all things that can be manufactured. Clothes, a little sunburn, and a month's growth of beard, along with a little acting would do the trick. Uh-huh. What did you go out to Tavender for, then? I played a hunch and went over to the general store to take a look at the last batch of laundry, and there wasn't any that didn't fit the Coonses and none of the laundry bills all the way back to June were for large enough amounts, when you consider that we were told how particular Thornburg was about his clothes. <laughs> it must be great to be a detective. <sighs> so, I guess we ain't going to hang them folks for murder after all. No, but we oughtn't have any trouble convicting them of arson, plus conspiracy to defraud, and anything else that the prosecuting attorney can think up. <sighs> Let's go break the news to your boss. You have been listening to Arson Plus, the fourth program of Potpourri Theater's fourth season, starring the Narada Radio Company. Featured in the cast, Pete Lutz as the Continental Op, Alan Clower as Sheriff Tar, Austin Henna as Deputy McClump, Skeeter Ullman as Deputies McHale and Macklin, and the Hotel Manager, Ross Bernhardt as Mr. Coons, Owen McEwen as Mr. Alice, Lisa Espinosa as the real estate agent, Jason D. Johnson as Henderson, Gene Giggy as Pringle, 
Teddy Gigi as Mrs. Jabeen, Micah Blaine as Philo, Kevin Schuster as Luce, Diana DeHoyos as Evelyn Trowbridge, Nick Womack as O'Hara and the bank manager, and Peter D. Howard as Jeffers, with additional voices by George Hatfield, Katie Lofton, and Morris Curran. Your announcer was Cannonball Kelly. Arson Plus was originally published as a short story by Dashiell Hammett and appeared in the October 1st, 1923 issue of Black Mask Magazine under the pseudonym Peter Collinson. It was produced under the supervision of Pete Lutz. And now here's Pete to tell you about our next episode. Next time on Pulpery Theater, we return to the realm of the supernatural with a weird thriller called Hands of the High Priest. It's about an archaeological expedition that acquires the eye of a stone god and the curse that follows every member of the party as a result. Be sure to join us for that, won't you? Until then, this is Pete Lutz asking you to call me if your situation improves and to keep your ears clean. Music selections for this episode. Violin Concerto in D minor, Opus 47 by Sibelius, and two versions of the very fitting tune, Flaming Mamie, performed by Mike Markell's orchestra and by Kuhn Sanders' original Nighthawk Orchestra. Sound effects obtained through a Creative Commons license and from the public domain. The Pulpery Theatre theme was composed and performed by Rich Wentworth. Introductory announcements by Gene Lutz and Rich Wentworth. The preceding production was sourced from materials in the public domain, except where indicated. The audio play script and the production itself are original works and are the property of their creator, and thus protected by copyright. This production was pre-recorded and mixed at 63 Audio, Corpus Christi, Texas. Remember, Pulpourri Theater is your source for the best in audio drama. This has been a 63 Audio production. right, friends. Why are you smoking anything other than dromedary cigarettes? That's D-R-O-M-E-D-A-R-Y, dromedary cigarettes. The smoke with only one hump. Regular smokers will tell you that dromedaries are a light smoke, easy on the draw and easy on the throat. In a recent test, regular smokers smoked nothing but dromedaries for 30 days. World-famous throat specialists examined these smokers' throats and reported not one case of throat irritation caused by dromedaries. And why is that, friends? Because the tobacco in dromedary cigarettes is blended with a mixture of eucalyptus, menthol, and dextromethorphan. So, each cool, relaxing smoke coats your throat with the same ingredients as a cough drop. So remember, friends... Dromedary cigarettes are proudly recommended by the American Medical Association. Dromedary cigarettes, the smoke with only one hump. Your doctor smokes them, and so should you. D-R-O-M-E-D-A-R-Y, are you smoking anything else? You're listening to the Mutual Audio Network, where we listen and imagine together.